Well, good morning, Mount Horeb. My name is Trevor Miller. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I'm so thankful to be able to worship with you this morning here in the room. If you're in the room, let me hear you. If you're online, let me hear you. Dumb joke. So, um, listen, we're so thankful to be able to connect here in this space and also be able to connect online for those who are tuning in. I got an email after the 9 o'clock service from some folks who are watching in Wisconsin this morning. Um, I feel like there's other things you could do probably, but we're really thankful that you've tuned in. And I'm thankful for this morning to be able to connect with you on what I believe to be a very, very important topic. Uh, We've been in the midst of a sermon series called Beating the Odds. And in this sermon series, we've been talking about all the different principles that God has given us within Scripture that could help us individually and and, uh, collectively beat the odds that too often become a part of our lives. Uh, Here's the truth this morning. The odds are not stacked in our favor when it comes to life. Would you agree? I mean, life's not looking out for your particular interests. Therefore, if that's the case, we've got to be very, very careful that we don't gamble with how our life ends up, that we don't just roll the dice for how things go. We've been talking about the fact that God has given us principles to help us make sure that we beat the odds in terms of our choices, our mindset, our finances, our time. If you haven't watched any any of these services, I would encourage you to go to the church website and go back and catch up on some of these. They were very good, incredibly powerful, very practical. Would love for you to make sure you catch up on those things. But this morning, I want to talk about an area of our life that I'm very, very passionate about. I'm the family pastor here at the church, so it's not just because of my title, but it's because I really do care about the families of this church, the families of this community. I want to see families experience the full life that God has for you, every single one of you, no matter what part of the family you are. I believe that God wants to teach us this morning that we as families, we can beat the odds. We can experience new life. Uh, You probably, when you think of family, have different images that come to mind and different memories and different, you know, emotions that come forth when you think of family. And for me, when I think of family, I think of a table because my family, we, we like to eat. So we connect over a couple different things. We connect over food. Anybody else in the room? We connect around the table. And I remember as a kid uh, being at my grandparents' house and everybody being there, all the cousins, all the family. And we loved to go to my grandparents' house. My grandmother was an amazing cook. And so we would come together. I remember very distinctly, uh, everybody would kind of like patiently sort of waiting for the prayer, but really eager to fill the plates and get things rolling. And I remember my family, we would gather around together for a meal. We would sing our prayers. Anybody else in the room sing your prayers? Okay, nobody in two services. So we do. I have an uncle named David. He's kind of the ringleader to the whole thing. So when we get around a circle before we eat, we would sing, be present at our table, Lord, and I will spare you the rest. We would sing the rest of the prayer together. At the very end, we would end, of course, in like 23-part harmony on amen. And then after we would sing our prayer, then we would begin to eat. And in my grandparents' house, there was like two main tables. The first one was like the big wooden table with all the leaves and like 100 feet long, you know? And all the adults sat there. And then there was one more table called the kids' table, the fan favorite. I loved sitting at the kids' table. And it was a few feet away from the main wood table, and it was covered in a tablecloth. Usually, It was usually a card table or something like that. It was within feet of the, the adult table to make sure everybody kept tabs on what was going on because that was the rowdy place. But in my life, when I think of family, I think of the table. And being around the dinner table, it was loud. It was hectic. It was crowded. It was fun. And for me, it's family. You see, for centuries, people have connected around the table. It's been a place of connection. The table has been a gathering point for families to come together to share a meal, to share a laugh, to share a cry, to share about their day, to share about their hopes and their dreams. And it was around the table where we began to realize and recognize that we had a common life with one another, with those who were sitting next to us, those who were sitting across from us. In fact, if you think about it, probably in this room, many of us have a room in our house dedicated to this very thing called the dining room. 
where we come together and we connect with one another. I've heard someone say before that a strong family is one that has well-worn seats around the dinner table. There's been a disturbing trend, though, over the past couple decades, uh, for many decades, actually, where this, this ability to connect around the table has become more and more and more difficult. I want to show you a, a graphic really quickly from uh, an organization called YouGov.com. And it's given some information that I believe doesn't tell the whole story of where our families are today, but it tells a little bit of the story of what I want to talk about this morning. If you look, according to this website, 60 years ago, family dinner time was around 90 minutes long. A lot to do, right? You're going to eat together, you're going to talk a little bit, connect, tell some jokes or whatever. You're spend some time. And now today, family dinners on average are less than 12 minutes long. Think about that. How many minutes have been missed out around the table? Not only that, but in the past 20 years, family dinners have declined by 33%. Now, I'm not saying the silver bullet is just eat dinner together and everything's fine. That's not what I'm saying. But it's indicative of something that's taking place within our families that I believe is something that God wants to combat. I believe it's an odd that I don't want us as a church to continue to, uh, continue to produce within our community. I think as a church, I want to be the kind of place, the kind of families that want to connect with one another. There's a very good chance that you may be a family here in the room this morning who's watching online this morning who can relate to these kind of statistics, these kind of odds, who know the sting of dysfunction, who know the sting of disconnectedness and disenfranchisement within the family. You maybe know the sting of of people around the table who have pushed away or are no longer willing to engage with one another. It's an odd that I believe God wants us to actually beat, and I believe he gives us the tools to beat it. Within my family, we've felt this even this past year. Let's be honest. It's been a rough year for, like, everybody. And there's all kinds of things that have happened in this past year that makes it more and more difficult for us to be able to connect to one another. What I have found is if we don't take that intention to connect to each other, side to side, across the table, if we don't connect with one another, then it's very, very difficult to, to really know what's going on in the life of those around us, the people that we live with, the people that we're supposed to love. It's hard to stay connected. You throw in cell phones, you throw in sports, pandemic, demanding work schedule, pressure of school, all of these things, it becomes very difficult to stay connected unless we do it with intention. You see, away from the table is a very di- difficult and dangerous place to be. Whether you're a student or a child in the room this morning, being away from the table is a dangerous place to be. If you're a parent in the room this morning, being away from the table is a dangerous place to be because it's easy from that position to point fingers and to pass blame on why there's dysfunction, on why there's disconnection. What I want to talk about this morning is that there is a spiritual discipline that I want us to recover as a family and as a church, as a community, and that is one of table fellowship. Connecting with one another once again. And here's the thing. You can only be responsible for you. Your willingness to be at the table, to play your part, is crucial in being able to beat the odds within your family. The Bible has a lot to say about family from top to bottom. All over the Bible, there's information about the family, how we should live as a family, what God designed for us as a family. And these principles, they allow us to be able to beat the odds and experience the full life God wants. In fact, in the book of Ephesians is where I really want to begin today. I want to to really sit in chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Ephesians as Paul is writing this revolutionary understanding of the way families function and relate to one another. It's a redemptive instruction based upon Jesus Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection. 
it's as radical then as it is for us now. But I believe if we can hear it and we can allow it wash over us, we potentially could experience a new life within our family. Paul has just finished in chapter five, giving all kinds of information to everyone who is reading and who is listening, not just then, but to us now as well. And he's explaining how we as people are responsible for our own lives. And he says, the reason you have to understand that you're responsible, he says, is because the days are evil. Sound familiar? Paul says the days are evil. You must be responsible for your own life. It's imperative that the readers that are listening at that time and today understand that we're responsible for the way that we act around the table and what we bring to the table. Paul starts in Ephesians chapter five and verse 21. He says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Based on everything that Paul just said, now he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, what he's doing here is Paul is creating a framework that everything else he's going to say is going to hang on. Unless you understand verse 21, you will never understand the rest of the things that Paul's trying to convince us of and teach us about. In verse 21, this word submit to one another, the word submit here is a specific Greek word. It's hupotasso, and it means this, to arrange under, to be placed under. Paul is talking about our willingness to submit to each other, to honor one another, to serve one another, to accept responsibility towards one another. And he gives a reason for why we do this. And the reason is Christ. The reason is Jesus. You see, what Paul is introducing here is absolutely revolutionary because those who are living in Ephesus, they are part of a Greek or sorry, Greco-Roman culture. Their past history is Greek and Roman culture and lifestyle. So what Paul is doing is he's speaking into this particular world with early Christians, people who are just learning what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of God, for Jesus to dictate the way their life goes. And in Ephesus, there was something called household codes. It was the way that you lived within the house. It was top to bottom. This is what it looks like. And it was a result of a certain philosophy at that point in time. And Greco-Roman culture, they embraced this wholeheartedly. This is how the family goes. And part of this philosophy was called patria potestas. It literally meant the rule of the fathers. The rule of the fathers. This meant that all power within the family rested in the father. As the father went, so the family went. As the father decided, he owned everything. He dictated every decision. The wife had no power. The children had no power. The father was the center of the entire family. Everything was top down from him down. So wives had to submit to their husbands because this was household code. Children, submit to your husband. This was, or to your, your father. This was a household code. It was expected. Arrange under, place yourself under the father and there's no discussion about it. This is how the family was structured. So when Paul says in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, it's a radical new structure to the family. Paul says it's now about mutual submission. It's not the way you've always understood it. Jesus Christ has changed everything. It's no longer just father down. It's different. There's a different motivation for this. That's the important part. And the motivation was a reverence for Christ. You see, Jesus changes everything and Paul is turning everything on his head. Now, I would argue that in our current culture in 2021, it's very different from when Paul was writing this letter. If when Paul was writing this letter, letter, it was was as the father goes, the family goes, I would argue in 2021, it's more like as the children go, the family goes. It's a lot of power. 
There are families in this community who I know structure their schedule, their finances, their routine, everything around the children within the home. And they're so precious. But it's dangerous. You see, in our culture, there's families look all kinds of different ways. Within our culture, there's, there's divorced families, there's blended families, single mothers, single fathers, these different families. I believe Paul would say the same thing to all of us. If your structure of your family in any kind of way has an authority that is anything other than Jesus Christ, you're missing out on what verse 21 means. We now submit to one another. We arrange under one another. We place ourselves under one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Now you might say, well, listen, if, if nobody's in charge and everybody's submitting to each other, who's in charge? Who makes the calls? I'm so glad you asked. Jesus. It's not just the father, not just the mother. It's certainly not just the children. Paul says we make decisions based upon Jesus Christ. Such relationships that Paul is inviting us into have to be characterized by humility, respect, all parties imitating Christ who time and time again voluntarily placed himself under in a position of submission out of reverence for Christ. If you want to beat the odds in your family today, here's what I'm convinced of. It cannot be as the father goes, the family goes. It cannot be as the mother goes, the family goes. It cannot be as the children go, the family goes. It must be as Christ goes, the family goes. That is the revolutionary, redemptive work that Paul is trying to bring to these early Christians in Ephesus. And I would argue is what he wants to bring to us today as well. You see, Jesus demonstrated all throughout his ministry that he preferred humility to hierarchy. He preferred service to strength. The question at our family table must become more like this. Are we collectively being led by the heart of Jesus in the way we relate to one another? Parents, children, are we collectively being led by the heart of Jesus? Do we treat one another in the kind of way that it shows reverence for Christ? Do we see our part that we play within the family as an opportunity to offer the redemptive work of the Savior to those who sit beside us and who sit across from us and for those who have pushed away from the table altogether out of reverence for Christ? Here's a true example. Let's just say it's a Saturday night. Let's just say I'm preaching the next day. I don't know, like yesterday and today. And let's just say I put my children to bed and they were supposed to be asleep an hour ago. And let's just pretend that I can hear them in the back room still giggling, laughing, wrestling, whatever is going on. And so what I often do is I will stand up and I will say to my wife, our children are so disrespectful. And then I will secretly be angry that she's not handling the situation. And then I will walk down the hallway to where my children are laughing and giggling. But the truth is I will stomp down the hallway to make sure they hear every single foot as it comes to the room. And I'm thinking to myself, God, thank you for this opportunity to submit myself to my family, to place myself under my children and my wife. No, I'm not thinking that. I'm, I'm bringing the hammer. I'm angry. And so I will fling the door open and I will say in the loudest voice I possibly can, do you have any idea what I have to do tomorrow? Preach the word of God. Do you have any idea the responsibility that I have to come and be ready to be able to share with people who will come to hear the truth of God's word? Do you have any idea 
the work that I put in to put a roof over your head, clothes on your body, food in your mouth? Do you have any idea the work that I go through to make sure that you have everything that you need? And we ask you to do one thing, go to sleep, and you can't do that. I confess to you that oftentimes this is the way that I live my life. Sound familiar? How many times in that little scenario did I say I? Do you have any idea what I have to do? Do you know what I have done? It's a glimpse into the way that I oftentimes see my family, that they are there to serve my needs and my wants. Do you have any idea what I've done for you, what I have to do, what I'm responsible for? It's an indication that I don't know what it means to submit to one another out of mutual submission for Christ. Paul would remind us, it's not about you. If you're a parent in the room this morning, I don't want to hurt, I'm going to hurt your feelings. It's not about you. It's never been about you. Children, I know it's easy to think it's about you. It's not about you. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are. It's not about you. This whole thing is about Jesus. This whole thing is about Christ. And out of reverence for him, we relate to one another. Here's where I think some of us this morning have to start in reverence for Christ. And it starts with repentance. It starts first and foremost being willing to come to God and say, God, I don't have within me the proper equipment to be able to do what you're asking me to do. I'm a flawed human being. I am fallible. I make mistakes. I fly off the handle. I try to use power to control my children. I, I'm sorry. I repent. And maybe that's where some of us have to start today. Maybe if you're a kid in the room, maybe you try repentance, true repentance. God, I'm sorry that I've treated my parents in the way that I've treated them and not seen them as a gift that you've given me. And maybe for some of us, we have to recognize that we don't even care. We've been at this for a year, 10 years, you name it. We've tried so hard and it's never worked. People push back from the table. No one's willing to engage people next to them, across from them. And so because that I'm over it, I don't even care anymore. Maybe the repentance that has to take place is for you to say, God, I'm sorry that I don't care. Would you help me care again? Would you even give me the desire to want to come back to the table? The desire to want to love my family once again. We need your help, God. We can't do this by ourselves. Paul introduces to us three relational dynamics that reflect the heart of Jesus that he wants us to involve within our families. These are the things that help us beat the odds. These are the things that, that help us live the life that God has called us to. The first one we find right after verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And here's the very next thing Paul says in Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything, to which all the husbands say amen. But wait, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, Paul speaks first to a major part of the dynamic within a household, a major part around the table. He says to wives within the home, as well as to husbands, here's how you relate to one another. Now, I'm not going to stay here long because next weekend, I mean, total hook for you to come back. We're going to talk specifically about beating the odds in our romance. I want you to come back, but, but I cannot not talk about this piece. It's crucial to our understanding of what Paul's trying to say. 
So once again, Paul is speaking to a Greco-Roman culture. So to every Greco-Roman person, as Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands, they all go, yep, got it. We can do that. But then listen to what Paul says. Submit to your husbands. But the major change here is the motivation. You don't submit to your husbands because he's the ultimate authority. You don't submit to your husbands because the household code says so. You don't submit to your husbands because you're told to and culturally you're supposed to. You do it because first and foremost, you submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus. That's why you do it. That's why you submit to your husband. So because of Christ now, you place yourself under him. Just as Christ or the church submits to Christ. You see, Paul is mixing metaphors now. He's talking about marriage, but he's not just talking about marriage. He's talking about the church. He's talking about this relationship between Jesus and his church. It's like a a relationship between a husband and a wife. And he's mixing these two things together. So this marital relationship that you may be involved in right now. I don't want to put a lot of pressure on you. Yes, I do, though. Paul is saying your marriage is about a lot more than cake and some wedding rings and the Cupid shuffle. Your marriage is about the kingdom of God. The way you relate to one another, the way you submit to one another, the way you mutually submit to each other, it's about the kingdom of God. It's showing the kind of love that Jesus has for his church and the kind of love the church has for Jesus Christ. So wives submit to your husband as the church submits to Jesus. How does the church submit to Jesus? Sacrificially. Gives everything for Christ. Orients his entire life around Christ. But then he addresses the men. Wives, submit to your husbands. But then he says, husbands, love your wives. You see, within this culture in the ancient world at this time, husbands did not have anything that dictated they had to love their wives. Most marital relationships were probably a 30-year-old man with a 15-year-old girl. And the way it was structured, these men oftentimes would not see their wives as anything more than property. There was no respect there. There was nothing that said they had to love within the household codes. Again, it was, it was father down. It was patri potestas. This is how it works. You, the father, you call all the shots. The wife just goes along for the ride. And Paul says to the husbands, love your wives. Love them the way that Jesus loves the church. How did Jesus love the church? Gave himself up for her. Sacrificed his very life for her. That's a high calling. Paul says you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And here's what it looks like. You mutually submit. The first relational movement he teaches us is this sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. If you want to beat the odds within your family, it's got to start here. Sacrificial love. Parents in the room, sacrificially loving those around the table from you. Children, sacrificially loving your parents and those around you at the table. I found this on the internet this week, and it was some young children explaining in their own words what love was like. Some of the things they said was this. When a grandmother, when my my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different, one child said. You just know their name is safe in your mouth. Another child said, love is when you go out to eat and give someone most of your French fries without making them give you any of theirs. (laughs) Love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before she gives it to him to make sure that it tastes okay. And one little girl said, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot because people forget. You see, sacrificial love 
is when we are no longer around the table asking questions like, what's in it for me? How does this somehow benefit my desires, my dreams? Instead, we're asking questions like, how does this benefit my wife, my husband, my children? Sacrificial love will cost you something. It will hurt because it's against our very nature to look out for others. Really practically, I want to paint this. And maybe in the room, there's, there's a wife and you've been wanting your husband to do nothing but plan like one date night, just one. You don't care where you go, you'll go bowling. Just whatever, just one date night. And there's some husbands in the room watching online. You're like, you're looking for every reason not to. You're like, well, the game's on. I'm really busy. There's a lot going on. It's hunting season. You, know, you name it, there's, there's something. We're looking for reasons not to. Sacrificial love doesn't look for reasons not to. It looks for reasons to do. How do I get out of this? No, no, no. Now we start saying, how do I make this happen? How do I sacrifice in order to show love and, and grace and mercy to those that I love? Children in the room, I want to remind you of something. At one point in time, you couldn't clothe yourself. Your parents clothed you, hopefully, right? They changed your dirty diapers for years. Parents, right? I, I think that, that maybe, perhaps, it would be okay for you to put the phone down just for a while. Come help with laundry, mow the yard, be a part of what's going on. With, come to the table in some kind of way. I don't care how old you are. I don't, I don't care how much you think maybe the family revolves around you. It doesn't. It revolves around Jesus. So be a part of what's happening. It's sacrificial love. You may not want to do it. And I would say if you don't want to do it, chances are it's a good reason that you should. It's sacrificial. It's the redemptive norm that Paul is trying to teach the early church. This is how we love each other. Paul then introduces a second relational dynamic in chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 1, he then says this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And all the parents said, amen. Children, obey your parents, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. He's quoting Old Testament scripture, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. Obey your parents. Honor your father and mother. You have to remember, within Greco-Roman culture, patria potestas, this is something that had to happen anyway. Children had to honor their parents. They had to, their, their father in particular. There was no choice here. But Paul, again, is changing the motivation. You're not honoring your father because the household codes tell you to. You're doing it because you want to have reverence for Christ. You want to honor them in the Lord. This is the change of motivation. Children, you are not just to honor them because it's the right thing to do and the culture tells you to. You do it because you are honoring authority. And that authority is of Jesus Christ. You see, this honor of authority only makes sense. It only makes sense when we first and foremost come under, submit to the, the authority of Jesus Christ. So parents in the room, in order for our children to be able to obey us and honor us, it starts with us first submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ within our lives. That's where it starts. And then children, obey your parents. It's paramount to that relationship. Then and only then. Can we take up the mantle as parents to parent our children in a way that honors God? I have a daughter who's 16 months old and she's got this new trick and it's climbing up on chairs to get on top of tables. She loves it. We hate it. Because we know that when she gets on top of the table, it's just a moment's notice. She could fall, crack her head open, break an arm, whatever it might be. And so 16 months, she doesn't understand this. She thinks it's fun and she throws a fit every time we grab her and pull her off. But we are actively trying to convince her that it's wise to obey her parents, because we want to ruin her life. 
No. We want her to understand that it's wise to obey her parents because we love her. We want what's best for her. And ultimately, we are, we are submitting to Christ's leadership in our lives so we can lead her well. We want her to obey. Children in the room, I want you to hear me. Honoring your parents doesn't mean that you agree with them. Obeying your parents doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It may just simply mean that you trust that they are trying to lead you the best way they know how, under the authority of Jesus Christ. Here's how you can honor your parents. You live your life in such a way that you give your parents a good name. I'm 37 years old. I still think of this, that I want to live my, my, my life as a father myself, but still as a son. I want to live my life in such a way that I give my parents a good name. So no matter who you are in the room, if you have parents, live your life in such a way that you honor them. But not only that, parents, we must be so focused on living our life in such a way that we are worthy of that honor. Do you hear me? We are all responsible. We are all responsible for ourselves and how we interact with those around the table from us. Author and speaker Paul David Tripp says it this way. I think it's so well said. He says there are two types of parenting ultimately. The first one is ownership parenting. Ownership parenting. The second one is ambassadorial parenting. You see, an owner parent believes that your child is yours. And because they are yours, they will re be respectful. They will know how to share. They will be kind. They will be grateful. They'll be hardworking. They will be responsible. They will be obedient. They're mine, and I will ensure that that happens. Ambassadorial parents, they understand something that owner parents don't understand. And that's that your children are not yours. Your children are God's first. And you are an ambassador on God's behalf to show them what this new kingdom looks like what this Jesus looks like, the way to live and relate to one another. So your children, when they do things that frustrate you, more than likely they don't mean to. When they do things that make you lose your mind, they run around with no shoes on outside, they don't hate you. They hit their sister or their brother. They're not trying to make sure they lose privileges and are grounded. They love that. That's not the case. Here's what's happening. They're kids. They don't know what they're doing. They, they are foolish. And your job as a parent, the reason God has placed them under your leadership is because you are meant to teach them, to show them the invisible qualities of Jesus Christ, make them visible by the way that you relate to them and love them. Now, if you leave here today and say that Trevor says, I don't have to have any rules in my house, you've missed it. It's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that the rules and the way we relate to one another, we do it with grace. And we show them what Jesus looks like by the way we treat them. Lastly, Ephesians 6, chapter 4, verse 4, Paul introduces one more relational dynamic. And now he's talking to fathers for obvious reasons within the culture. Ephesians 6, 4, he says this, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, parents, don't exasperate your children. This Greek word is fascinating. It literally means to make someone angry from close behind. It has an image of like pushing buttons, just enough buttons to frustrate someone. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. The final relational dynamic has to do with us as parents recognizing, being aware of, that oftentimes we have a way of placing expectation upon our children that perhaps is unreasonable. 
in a culture like Lexington, in our community that I love very much, I've seen there's a lot of pressure to perform and achieve. There's bars that are placed very, very, very high and they can be crushing to a child. There may be things that we expect of our children, ways that they act, ways they carry themselves, things they value that they may fail to display and we as parents, we just won't let it go. What Paul's introducing in this last concept is this, a desire to protect the vulnerable. As parents, to protect the vulnerable. Do you understand that what God has given you within your child is a precious gift? God's entrusted it to you. And that child's spirit is delicate and it has to be handled with care. There's not a one size fits all. Each one is unique. It has to be treated as such. And Paul says, don't allow your sinful nature, your sinful self, to try to parent your child by the things that only you want. Instead, Paul says, train them up in the way of the Lord. When I was in elementary school, I had a best friend and every day when I got off the bus, I would run inside and take my bag off and throw it in the house and I'd run up the road to his house and I'd get there and almost every single day when I would get there, I'd be ready to play, but my friend would have to be going through certain basketball drills. There was a certain percentage of free throws he had to hit every single day before he could be done practicing. A certain amount of uh, dribble drills he had to do to be able to finish up for the day. And I remember going up there and I would throw the football with his dad in the yard. And he wasn't a bad man. He was a wonderful man, but he would get frustrated sometimes with my friend because he wouldn't do exactly what he's supposed to do. And sometimes would take the ball and chuck it down the road. And my friend had to go down and get the ball and come back and finish everything out before we could finally play together. As an elementary kid, I didn't quite understand what all was going on. I didn't understand the motivation here. And I would watch my friend cry, and I just wouldn't understand what was going on exactly. And my friend was an amazing basketball player. I mean, he, he, was, he was well-trained. And he played basketball all through elementary school, middle school, and then eventually hit high school. And his sophomore year of high school, he put the basketball down and never picked it up again. It was done. And his, his spirit had been broke on the game. He had pushed too much, too hard. I think when Paul says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. I think sometimes we as parents, myself included, we're so guilty of trying to get our children to obey our law. And we're fallible, broken people. Sometimes we're so tempted to want to live vicariously through our children to be able to accomplish something maybe we didn't get to accomplish for whatever reason. And sometimes we want our children to meet certain expectations because it puts ourselves in a good light in the community. They make us look good. And if this is our motivation, that we're not protecting them, that we're exasperating them. We're poking the buttons. You see, protecting the vulnerable at the table means instead we are training them up in the instruction of the Lord. What's the instruction of the Lord? What would Paul mean here? Here's what Paul means. Grace, not law. Grace. We've had to really work at this in my family. There are some children that the Lord has blessed me with that are strong-willed. And my wife and I have to remind ourselves often, no, we cannot parent by just trying to have more power to get them to back down. That's not how we parent. Instead, we have to do it the way Jesus does with grace and mercy. Recognizing they don't have within them what it takes to be able to even understand or to be able to hold together what I'm asking them to do right now. So I offer grace. You see, in Ephesus, there was a law that was expected for the obedience of children And instead, Paul is setting up a new expectation. And my question that I think we have to ask is, is the expectation I have for my children, is it as important to Jesus as it is to me? 
If there is one place that I'm afraid that we try to have the law do what only grace can accomplish, it's within parenting. Paul says, don't exasperate your children. Protect the vulnerable. Ephesians chapter five, chapter six. I think what this is that Paul's giving us is an invitation to come back to the table. If any one of us in the room, no matter what part we play within the family, if we have pushed away from the table, this is an invitation to come back. Maybe right now you're thinking, listen, my family's been blown up a long time ago. I don't know. There's always hope. There's always a chance. There's always a chance for redemption when Jesus is involved. Come back to the table. Maybe children, maybe this morning you're recognizing for the first time that you've been part of the people around the table who's unwilling to engage. Come back to the table. This is an invitation that Paul gives to see our responsibility to those that we sit next to, those we sit across from. Our family is ultimately a reflection of the way that we experience and see Jesus. What theology forms your family? I think Paul offers a new way. Sacrificial love, the honoring of authority, and the commitment to protect the vulnerable. See, at the end of Jesus' life, with just hours before his life would end, he got together with his closest friends, friends as close as family. And they gathered around a table together to have one final time together. Now, Jesus could have said, everyone come together. I have one final sermon to give you. I have one last lecture to make sure I tell you before I go. But Jesus didn't do that. He did something different. N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, he says it this way. When Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he did not give them a theory, he gave them a meal. He said, come around the table. You see this bread? This bread is like my broken body. This cup, it's like the blood that I'm gonna shed on the cross for every one of you. This will change everything. And so this morning, I want to invite us all back to the table as we will take part in this sacrament of communion together. As Jesus demonstrates his saving work, he does it through a meal around a table, partaking with one another. And so this morning, as we come to this table, let's come repentant. God, forgive us. Help us. Help us to come to the table and engage with one another once again. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we confess this morning that we don't have what it takes to be able to do what you've asked us to do. That we are reliant upon the broken body of Christ, the shed blood of Christ that redeems us and that can redeem our family. Help us, God, to live in such a way that we live with sacrificial love. Help us to honor your authority within our life that we might honor others around us. And God, I, I pray that that you would help us to protect the vulnerable within our family and recognize you've given us something to steward and to steward well. We love you, Lord. We're thankful for the avenue that you have given us for transformation through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.